listen, in any conflict, there's always a risk of being bombed, but usually there's, you know, there's a safe area. There's a place you can drive to where you're not going to be at risk. And in Syria, that just doesn't really exist. It is the week between Christmas and New Year's, so I wanted to do something a little different this week and bring you one of my favorite episodes from deep in the archives. Now, I started Global Dispatches 10 years ago in 2013. And back then, aside from the BBC, there weren't really any international affairs and world news podcasts. Today, of course, the landscape is a bit richer, and I'm happy for that. I don't view other international affairs podcasts as competition, but rather believe that a rising tide lifts all boats, so the more the merrier. But 10 years ago, the podcast industry was in its infancy, and the format of Global Dispatches was a bit different than it is today. I would sit down with people who had had interesting lives or careers in foreign policy and international affairs and interview them about their life and career, often with digressions about the historic foreign policy moments in which their career intersected. I did around 200 of these long-form biographical interviews over the first several years of the podcast. I did so many of these, I can't name them all here, but some of the names you might recognize include George Mitchell, James Stavridis, Joseph Nye, Nick Kristoff, Robert Wright, Fareed Zakaria, Jessica Tuckman-Matthews, Dennis Ross, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and so many more. These interviews are mostly behind a paywall at this point and unlocked for subscribers via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But for today, I wanted to bring everyone my 2016 conversation with Clarissa Ward. She is CNN's chief international correspondent. At the time, Clarissa Ward had recently snuck into rebel-held territory in Syria, including Aleppo. It was because of her several excursions into Aleppo that she was invited to brief the Security Council later that year. We kick off with a long conversation about the mechanics of sneaking into rebel-held territory and the risks that entails. We then have a long conversation about how and why she became a journalist, including her time in Beirut and Baghdad. I wanted to bring you this episode in particular, for one, because I just deeply admire Clarissa Ward, and also in December, she became the first, if only, Western journalist to enter Gaza without embedding with the IDF. She filed a harrowing report from a makeshift hospital in southern Gaza, which I will link to in the show notes of this episode. This conversation with Clarissa Ward is a great example of the kinds of episodes you can unlock by becoming a premium subscriber. You can access the entire archive directly in Apple Podcasts, or if you listen on Spotify, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. All right, happy holidays, and here is my conversation from 2016 with journalist Clarissa Ward. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It felt to me like a very exciting opportunity to be able to tell uh, one of the most important bodies in the world what I had been seeing and hearing on the ground inside Syria, every single one of the dozen or so trips that I've taken into rebel-held territory over the last five years. So I was tremendously looking forward to being able to really speak out about what I have seen and experienced and witnessed on the ground. It's a rare opportunity for any journalist to, to get to speak to the United States, uh, to the UN Security Council, as you said, and uh, and I was profoundly grateful to have it. But I didn't have any sort of preconceived idea of what I wanted to say or what message I wanted to get across. I just wanted to talk through my personal experiences on the ground. Uh, and so you mentioned earlier that you are one of the very few Western journalists who have visited uh, Aleppo, and you were there in February. Is that right? Yeah, I was there right at the end of February, beginning of March so, time. How did you actually make it there? I spent about six months planning this trip. It was very complicated for a number of reasons. The security situation obviously is terrible, primarily because of the uh, sort of seemingly arbitrary aerial bombardment, but also, of course, because of the uh, the jihadist factions who are on the ground and the threat of kidnapping. So it took a long time to organize this trip to make sure that I had the right contacts. These are contacts that I have been uh, establishing or working on for years. So I felt pretty confident that uh, the trip had been planned to the best possible extent in terms of mitigating risk. Um, we were very low profile. I was wearing uh, an abaya and often the full facial veil, the niqab. Very few people knew about my trip inside Syria. Only a handful of people knew. And um, we went to great lengths to essentially make sure that it was as low profile as possible to keep moving uh, to the best of our abilities, to not go back to the same place twice. Um, and I was, you know, blessed to be working with a really great team on the ground. Because I have so, to imagine like once, once, um, you know, you start filming, uh, mm -hmm. that word must spread quickly, uh, well, I that was, someone's there. Yeah. yeah. I was working with a journalist who has been inside Syria now for several years. He's actually, uh, an American journalist called Bilal Abdul Karim. He's a convert to Islam who has been there on and off since 2012. And he is African-American, so he, he stands out. But he does a lot of work with cameras on TV 
And he's a well-known fixture within the community. So nobody's surprised when they see Bilal around with a camera. Mm. Nobody is particularly surprised uh, by that. So that that gave us quite a bit of cover in a sense because it meant that you know they just assumed that we were with Bilal and we were guests of Bilal or because we're women I don't think they were really spending too much time staring at us mm. and trying to work out who we were undoubtedly some of the people who we were interviewing understood probably that we were western journalists but you know just to be clear the vast majority of Syrian people desperately want their story to be told um they welcome uh, any westerner who's coming to tell their story uh, or frankly, any journalist who's coming to tell their story. So it's only really a small minority of opportunists who are potentially looking to to kidnap you. Um, and those were not people, fortunately, who we were spending any time with. So so I suppose the, the dual threats are the threat of, of kidnapping and then, of course, the threat of, of being sort of bombed at, at any given moment. Exactly, because, you know, listen, in any conflict, there's always a risk of being bombed, but usually there's, you know, there's a safe area. There's a place you can drive to where you're not going to be at risk. And in Syria, that just doesn't really exist. There's no hotel that you kind of go back to at the end of the day, which isn't going to get bombed or, or anything like that. You're living among the people and you are exposed to the same threats and risks that they are. Um, and you know, beyond the threat of kidnapping, which you can do quite a bit to mitigate, there's very little you can do to mitigate the risk of a barrel bomb falling on your head. Um, so can you take me through actually physically entering the city of uh, Aleppo? There is mm. uh, that that road that uh, just, I think just in, in recent weeks has changed hands or has been the subject of, of fighting that, you know, at one point provided a little humanitarian corridor into the city. Um, what, what is like, how do you actually enter, enter the city? So at the time that I visited Aleppo, there was one road. What's the name of that road again? It, 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 it's the Costello, the road. Costello road. That's right. Yeah. The yeah. Costello road. And it was the one road in and out of Eastern Aleppo or rebel held Aleppo. And even though this one road was uh, ostensibly traversable, I should say that it was no easy task and not for the faint of heart to even attempt this road because it was flanked by uh, regime positions, Syrian uh, regime positions, and also by Kurdish positions um, that were deemed to be kind of uh, fighting against the rebels who were in control of the road. So in order to try to mitigate some of the risk attached to traversing the road, the rebels had built these berms of earth up along the edge of the road, which I can tell you did not provide a huge amount of, uh, of comfort because while it provides some degree of cover, when you're talking about artillery and bombs and fighter jets, looking at a little pile of earth <laughs> by the side of the road does not exactly fill your heart with assurances. So when you start to drive down the road, essentially you just put your foot on the gas and drive as fast as you humanly can um, to, to try to get through this area where you're quite exposed as quickly as possible. Um, 
because there's also the threat of snipers. I mean, there's, there's many different threats and it's quite disheartening when you see along the roadside, it's littered with the sort of skeletons of cars that didn't make it along the road. Um, and whether they broke down, whether they were bombed, you don't really know. So it, you, your heart is definitely in your throat as you're sort of flying down this road at top speed. Then you get past the real danger area and you are suddenly contending with this, you know, surreal landscape of the outskirts of Aleppo, which are just completely almost deserted. Um, and there's just a very eerie quiet in these areas with no sense of real life going on. Um, there's not a lot of traffic. There aren't a lot of people on the streets. There's all the sort of regular sights and sounds of everyday life, even in a war zone have sort of vanished. And as you get further in, you do find these pockets of life and you'll see some cars or you'll see some people waiting in line to, to try to get drinking water, which has become a precious commodity now in Aleppo. You'll see the odd uh, market sort of spring up, huddled in the shadow of a bummed out building. You'll see some children playing on the ground, on the, on the road. Had, had you been to Aleppo before the start of the war? Yes. Oh, not before the start of the war. And this is always my great regret because I lived in Beirut from 2005 to 2008. And I used to go to Syria all the time, but I never made it to Aleppo. I was spending all my time in Damascus. And now it's a real, a real source of heartache to me because I, I know from reading and looking at pictures and even seeing it now, and it's, crumbled state, how beautiful um, and atmospheric and, and rich and unique uh, Aleppo clearly was. Well, how and dramatic of, of a shift from the first time you visited Aleppo at the start of the Civil War to the most recent time had, had there been? A dramatic shift. And I should say that, you know, when I first visited Aleppo, and I said this in my speech to the UN Security Council, I really already felt like parts of it looked like apocalyptic almost. Uh, you know, you had the same uh, parts where there was just entire blocks reduced to rubble and the relentless shelling and the relentless bombardment and that sickening pit of fear in your stomach all the time. And I remember feeling at that time that, that this must be like what hell is like and thinking that it couldn't get much worse. Um, and then visiting this time, I realized that it, it could get worse and it did get worse. Uh, it got much worse. And you look at recently, the Syrian army put out some drone footage of areas that it had um, briefly captured when the siege was still in place. And it's just extraordinary. It doesn't look like earth. It looks like the moon. It's all gray. There's no color. There's just dust and rubble and gray as far as the eye can see with these sort of tanks driving around. It, it, it looks like a sci-fi movie, honestly. 
Um, so you've mentioned uh, the fear that, that, that you experienced that you felt a, a couple of times now. I, I'm wondering how you deal with that, how you, you process that, how you manage uh, to, to work through that. I mean, what, mm. what did you have a, a process that you um, that you go through? I mean, knowing the, the, the fear that you're experiencing? I mean, I think you really have to, I mean, you know, the fear is going to be there, especially for me, if it's quiet ish, I can just get on with my work and keep busy. The minute I hear fighter jets or helicopters or artillery shells sounding like they're close by, um, I experience quite a visceral sense of fear. Um, and then the only thing that you can really try to do in that situation is to keep calm, focus on getting to a place, if there is one, where you can be safer or where you can take cover, making sure that you're with all your team. Um, and then beyond that, you, you know, I've sometimes compared it to being a bit like a, a, a doctor in an ER, though perhaps less noble, I'm certainly not saving lives. But when you have a sort of rush of trauma patients being brought in from a terrible train crash or whatever horrible thing it might be, you can't allow yourself to get carried away in, in the fear or the sort of horror of the moment. You have to just keep doing your job and that will get you through the moment. And then it's only usually later that you have an opportunity when you're in a safer place to kind of unpack it a little bit and try to process it and try to understand it or try to recognize things in your behavior that maybe are connected to that. Because the thing that people don't tell you about experiencing trauma, it's not like in the movies where you come out afterwards and like, you know, dream of seeing a, a child who you saw die in Syria. It's, it's at least for me, and I think obviously it's a subjective thing, it's a little less clear cut than that. So maybe you come out from a trip and you feel much more detached from your life, or you feel really irritable, or you feel like you can't concentrate, or you feel like you're not sleeping well. Um, you have to know to, to understand the signs, and you have to know how to treat them, and everybody has different ways of, of processing or unpacking. But for me, what I worry about the most you know, I might go on one of these trips a couple of times a year and spend a week there and then have a lot of time afterwards to try to process it. But for the Syrian people, this is the last five years of their life. There is no safe place to process it. There is no real psychiatric or psychological care to help unpack it. And the thing that was so striking to me this time in Aleppo was that everybody or so many of the women who I spent time with have that kind of 500 yard stare, which I know well from covering conflict is a more often than not a symptom of, of trauma um, or of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think we will only begin to discover in the years to come how much damage or how deep that trauma really goes and, and what the effects will be of it. 
Um, I'd love to to shift and learn a little bit about you and and how you came into this this line of work. Um, so where where are you from? My mother is American, mm-hmm. um, and she's from New Jersey originally. And my father is British. And I was born in London, and then I moved to New York when I was two, and then I moved back to London when I was eight, mm-hmm. and then I moved back to the U.S. when I was eighteen for college. Um, what did your parents do for work? My father works in finance. He was a banker. He's retired now. And my mother is a designer um, of homes, houses. So there was no real background of war reporting in my family. But I will say that my family are complete news junkies and are very into travel. My father moved to Hong Kong when I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And every summer we would do in Asia, traveling in Vietnam and India and all over. How, um, how so did had, your um, your parents' news junkiness uh, uh, sort of trickle its way down to, to you? Do you well, re- yeah. I think they just always, um, ex- we were always talking about issues, I would say. Um, they always encouraged me to learn languages and travel. And when I was thinking about my career, you know, when I was much younger, I wanted to be an actress. um, And I was very involved in theater. And my parents were always talking about journalism as uh, a way of essentially storytelling as well, but in a way that maybe would have more, um, what would draw more upon other skills that, that I had to offer, whether it was languages or, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, whatever it might be. They, I, they thought that that was a better use of my skills. And, um, in my senior year of college, nine 11 happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was for me, uh, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it really was such a seminal moment in my life. Where and, were you at school? I was at Yale, so I was in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and my mother was in New York, um, so I went down to New York right away to see her and be with her, because obviously, like everyone in New York, she was freaked out. Um, What do you remember about entering the city after 9-11? I remember, you know, it's so weird, because I was just talking about Aleppo. I just remember that sense of how quiet it was, Mm. and for any New Yorker, you know that New York is many things and quiet is not one of them. Um, And there is a really profound eeriness Mm -hmm. that came with that, that sense of silence and emptiness and shock and loss and confusion. Um, I mean, before that point, were you still, were you, were you already interested in pursuing journalism? I think that was a turning point for me. That was definitely a turning point for me. I was always very interested in, as I said, languages and travel and storytelling. But 9-11 was the moment where I realized that there kind of was nothing else important in the world to me other than trying to better communicate and better understand each other in terms of different societies, cultures. 
at that point, how many languages did you speak? Because I was uh, reading your your uh, CNN bio, which uh, has you with six languages, which is obviously very impressive. But they're not, it's not like they're all romance languages either. You also have Arabic and, and Mandarin. Right. So. Well, at that stage, they were all romance languages. Okay. So at that stage, I spoke French, Italian. And as a sort of result of that and having studied some Spanish, I, I can understand Spanish very well and, and speak it a little bit. Uh, although often I tend to speak like Italian with a Spanish accent. Uh-huh. Um, and then nine 11 happened and I immediately enrolled enrolled in Russian classes. Why Russian after nine 11? That's an interesting <laughs> well, pivot. You would think you well, know, Pashto no, or Arabic, but Russian. I know. And I wish I had a very romantic story to tell, but the reality was that Arabic was full. Uh-huh. <laughs> And beyond that, I was already studying Russian literature. So I was obsessed with Russian literature since I was like 14 years old. My dad gave me a copy of Anna Karenina. And ever since then, I was obsessed with Russian literature. So I, but 9-11 gave me the impetus. Okay, Arabic's full up. I can do that later. I'd like to at least more languages are in need of being learned. So I started to learn Russian. Then I went and did an internship with CNN in Moscow. And then I came back to New York and I was working the overnight shift um, as a sort of desk editor at the Fox News Channel. And I would finish my shift at nine in the morning and then I would go and study Arabic with an incredible woman from Yemen um, who who taught me a great deal. Uh, And then I ended up moving to Beirut shortly after that, like. 2005. What so what brought you to to Beirut at that point? Were were you working for a news organization? I was when I went to Beirut I went as a freelancer. I had been okay. working for Fox and I continued to freelance uh, primarily for Fox from the region going back and forth to Baghdad. I always knew I wanted to be in the field. I always knew I wanted to be on the ground in the places where things were happening and listening to the stories and understanding people. Um, I was never going to be uh, cut out for a desk job, uh, per se. So the minute the minute I had the opportunity to move to Beirut with some degree of job security. Um, so why I Beirut? Well, because Baghdad was the, the story very mm-hmm. much. And but you don't want to live in Baghdad all the time for obvious reasons. And Beirut was just a great place to base yourself. And next to Syria, it's a good place to learn Arabic. Syria is more than Beirut. Too many people speak French and English in Beirut. Um, And I think it's a great, was sort of a great introduction to the Middle East because it's, it's, it's sort of very Westernized in many ways, Beirut. But it's a good way to sort of start to dip your toe in the water. Um, and I spent a lot of time going back and forth to Syria as well. A lot of time, obviously, going back and forth to Iraq. I covered Gaza from there. So it was a perfect place. And then, of course, the war came to Lebanon in 2006. So I was covering that as well. So um, what what um, and, and you're just working for various freelance out, outfits and, and, and uh, you know, for various news organizations. Uh, are there any sort of stories from that um, early part of your career, that early mm. sort of foreign experience that are still sort of particularly resonant to this day that, that you draw upon? That's a really good question. Listen, I think they all are. I mean, I think they all are. I mean, I definitely look back on Iraq because I was so young 
when I was 25 when I went to Iraq for the first time. And by then it was already very dangerous. So you were really confined to these compounds where you lived and to embeds with the military. And when I look at the way I've been able to cover Syria, I think I have regret that we were not able to spend more time covering the Iraqi people's story, mm -hmm. uh, not out of a lack of volition to do so, but because of the uniquely challenging security situation there. Yeah, I remember there, there are actually uh, very few journalists. I remember Anthony Shadid, the late Anthony Shadid, had, had uh, an excellent book uh, at the time, yeah. uh, probably around 2005, that was the first real exploration I remember of, of the Iraqi side of the American invasion of, of Iraq. And I remember that being particularly influential on, on how I thought about uh, U.S. engagement there. 100%. I, yeah, yeah. What's it called? Night Draws Near. That was the name yeah. of the book. That was an excellent book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, so I, I do see what you're saying, that there there was very few um, sort of you know, first-person accounts from Iraq by American or Western journalists. And I think you also have to look at, like, how did that shape the narrative of the war? And I'm really proud of the work that, that, that I did and that many of us did um, <clears throat> with U.S. troops on the ground and, and covering what they were doing and the risks they were taking and the sacrifices they were making. And that was all really important. But, you know, it was only part of the picture. Um, and I, I so wish that that I had being able to have access to more of the picture. And part of that was a question of access. Part of it's a question of youth. Um, part of it, I'm sure, is the fog of war. But, but I still think often of every conflict I've covered, whether it was, you know, Gaza in 2006, whether it was the war in Lebanon in 2006, whether it was the war in Iraq, or, the war in Afghanistan, all of those experiences go into this sort of cumulative knowledge bank that one starts to acquire. I think, you know, I've been doing this now for 10 or 11 years or 12 years even. <laughs> and they're all invaluable in sort of informing your editorial decisions and, you know, you can't you can't learn this job in school. I don't think people often ask me if I study journalism. And of course, I think there are some incredible journalism classes out there. Um, and I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from doing them. But really, war reporting is something that you can only learn on the job and in the field. And I just think that every single trip you make, forces you to expand your horizons a little bit and um, continue to like create a space for nuance or, or at least strive for one. What war correspondents uh, have you learned from over the years? A lot of them. Um, so many of them. Well, you mentioned Anthony Shadid um, and he was definitely something of a hero to me as a as a war correspondent i loved his approach the humanity of it the sort of quiet elegance of his prose um and actually shortly before he died i had sent him some material that i had done in syria and 
he was very kind and gracious and supportive uh, of me and obviously just being a young journalist. And then just even saying that about being supportive makes me think immediately of Bob Simon of 60 Minutes, who was also, again, a legend. Again, the quality of the writing. And this is something that we don't necessarily put such emphasis on anymore, especially in TV news. But my God, you know, a Bob Simon script could have you weeping one minute and laughing the next and cursing another Mm -hmm. moment later. He um, and he was a very real person as well. He was not a sort of phony in any way, shape or form. He was complicated and affected by what he had seen and uh you know there there was a complexity and depth there that i i find you know inspiring as as you were um living in in beirut uh as Mm. a young journalist i mean did anyone take you under their wings Were, were there like was there like a community of correspondents that sort of you know, shared similar experience that supported each other or was it sort of each person for themselves sort of thing? I mean, I think there's always, I've been very lucky, you know, when I was freelancing with Fox news, there was a great correspondent, Jonathan Hunt. He's still a correspondent there. He was doing a lot of stuff in uh, the middle East and he was, he's, you know, gave me a lot of opportunities, a lot of encouragement. Uh, When I was working at ABC news, Martha Raddatz, was always a big supporter and um, and Hillary Brown also, who was, you know, one of the first great female war correspondents. Um, I mean, there's so many. Marie Colvin was an inspiration to me. I remember meeting her for the first time in Gaza in 2006 and being petrified because I was just in awe of her and her writing and her knowledge and her sensitivity and her bravery. Was, um, there's too many dimension almost. <laughs> was was that experience in, in Gaza in 2006? Was that during Operation Cast Lead, I presume? Yes. Um, was that your your first real experience? Um, you know, being sort of in a community that was being bombed. Yes, yes, it was. And then uh, you know, I came back from Gaza, and one week later, the war in Lebanon started. Mm-hmm. So, so that was kind of a baptism by fire summer. So how so so um, take me through then then your experience in in that 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 Gaza war. What was kind of going through your mind? I mean, going through your mind as you um, you know saw Israeli you know warplanes bomb uh, Gaza City, and and then presumably this is probably the kind of war zone where there was a hotel at which you could yes, go to that was you knew hotel. was not going to be you know targeted exactly. Um, well, I remember I had been there for ten minutes when I heard my first sonic boom. And of course, I didn't know it was a sonic boom when I heard it. I just hit the deck and thought I was about to die. But uh, the thing about sonic booms is even when you know they're sonic booms, even when they happen in the middle of the night, you just can't help. It's like a visceral physical reaction. I guess that's why they do it. It's uh, remarkably effective. But, um, you know, when you're in the moment, you don't often have the luxury of having the time, as I said, to kind of really think about it. You're just trying to get from A to B and, um, and, 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 and do your work and do what you need to do. Of course, it was shocking to me to, to see these bombs falling all around and to see, you know, children among the casualties. But I also remember being in a situation where I was 
uh, and I was producing at the time I was producing a live shot and a few hundred meters away from us, someone set off a rocket, um, which was also, you know, very scary. And you want to get out of that place as quickly as possible because you know what's coming back. Um, and we saw a car get targeted by a missile. Uh, it was intense. It was intense. It was full on. I was lucky to be working with this correspondent, Jonathan Hunt, who's really experienced and, um, and very good at, at sort of taking me under his wing. And I was working with a very experienced cameraman as well. So it was an incredible learning opportunity. Um, and then you said just a few a few weeks later you're back in Lebanon yeah. when uh, there was the 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 2006 that summer 2006 yeah. war uh, between Hezbollah and, and Israel in which Israel mm. invaded a, a portion of southern Lebanon uh, and there were you know, obviously a lot of airstrikes and bombs. Were you in? Mm. Were you were you parting from southern Lebanon? Were you in Beirut? Were you kind of I was in around? Beirut primarily. Um, I did a few trips to southern Lebanon, but I was based out of Beirut because I was sort of one of the only people who like knew Beirut from the team there. So mm. I was doing a lot of, and again, I was producing, so I was doing a lot of logistical stuff mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, as well as, you know, sort of producing, but that was to me a uniquely challenging war because it was very hard to be in Beirut and going out every day to Dahir or the Southern suburbs that were getting pounded and, and seeing the rubble and, and the casualties. And then, you know, when it would come time to do our live shots or be on TV, often it was, they'd be leading with, with the Israel, Israel side of the story and he, talking about people being treated for shock and trauma and, you know, obviously yeah. awful. But to me, who was on the Lebanon side of the story and, and seeing all these casualties and, and knowing that Hezbollah does not represent Lebanon as a whole, um, that was really hard. That was, that was really hard. And of course, there was one incident specifically where, and I can't remember it exactly, but I believe it was in Kana in southern Lebanon where there was a physically disabled children were hit a room full of uh i believe it was like a, a center for disabled children i think the israeli army contended that it was not um but you just suddenly sensed how polarizing war can be politically mm -hmm. and at that moment i understood as well how important it is as a journalist while you must call out when you see things. I mean, if you see a hospital get bombed, you need to say it was bombed. You also have to know when to have a boundary for yourself between speaking out against what you're seeing and trying to prescribe policy. Um, and that is something I'm cognizant of even today. So sort of report what you see, but don't make broader recommendations beyond that? Yes. I mean, I think it's, you're allowed to criticize. You're allowed to put forward what other people are saying or what their suggestions are. But I think if you can, it's best not to insert yourself into, mm -hmm. uh, into the debate.
Mm -hmm. But I have to imagine like, you know, the, the kind of the, the false equivalency, you know, of on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, you have a, a room full of disabled yes, children I, who are killed. Yeah. On the other hand, you have some shocked Israelis has to be sort of extremely frustrating. Well, I mean, this is in the case of Syria. This is why I have been very outspoken on Syria, because to me, it's not a question of neutrality to make false equivalence between what the the losses on the regime side, which are horrific and nobody is saying it's not, and the losses on the rebel side, which are beyond horrific. It's a question of scale. And the reality is one side has planes, one side has Russians and Iranian and uh, various Shiite militias fighting alongside them. And the other side has some support from Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, but they just don't have the same kind of weaponry and or uh, access to any kind of aerial bombardment. So to me, it's not, you know, one shouldn't make a, an equivalence where, where it's a false equivalence. Mm -hmm. um, so having spent a lot of time, obviously, in, in the Middle East, reporting from the Middle East, when the um, uprising in Syria began, uh, what was the first indication to you that this uh, uprising, this rebellion, this uh, at first was peaceful, would devolve into something, you know, with the depravity that we're experiencing today? Was there a moment where you realized that this was going to turn out very, very badly? Yeah, the moment I realized that was my second trip where the first trip I had been mostly with activists on the outskirts of Damascus. I had met some members of the Free Syrian Army. They were some of the first armed opposition groups that were forming. Their primary role at that stage was to basically form a perimeter around protests to act as a kind of self-defense or protection unit for protesters. But when I went back in February of 2012 and I spent time with rebel fighters, um, I think two things were very clear. One, this was now going to devolve into a full-scale armed conflict. Two, one side was going to get absolutely decimated because they just, you know, again, it's like a David and Goliath type of battle in terms of scale. And three, uh, some kind of a vacuum would would be created and that it it was obvious to me back then that um, extremists or terrorists or non-state actors would be the ones to fill that void. And actually, I interviewed then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton a month later, and I remember asking her specifically that, are you not concerned that if the international community doesn't step in here in some form, uh, that other non-state actors or extremists will step in and fill the void? And not that one gets any pleasure out of being right in situations like that. Um, but unfortunately, and this is something I said in my UN speech as well, this, the, this, the idea that the Islamist factions have emerged as the heroes on the ground um, in rebel-held Syria really should not come as a surprise to anybody. And what was the first indication that the Islamist factions were, were really a force to be uh, reckoned with, that, that your prediction was coming true? I think by the time I went back in August of 2012 and September of 2012 for 60 Minutes, and I was in Aleppo, and I did a story about uh, one Islamist group, um, 
uh, it was becoming clear that they were a force to be reckoned with, that they were more disciplined, better organized, that they were more unified uh, by this sort of shared ideology. And I remember talking to a man outside of Aleppo and he was trying to explain to me because I was a little surprised to see that everybody suddenly had beards and, you know, the sort of trim mustache and wearing military fatigues. And, you know, this was like a shift from what I had seen. And the old man was trying to explain to me, he was like, it's not that people are extremists. It's just that these guys are now the cool guys on the ground. They are the ones who are um, seen as, as, as saviors. And he said, trust me, my son has a big beard now, but still when he sees a pretty girl, he dances, you know, and he did this like funny little jig as he was doing it. And there was something very touching about that to me, firstly, because I think there was a genuine naivete on, on the part of most Syrians that they maybe didn't understand that they had kind of opened Pandora's box. Um, and they always thought that they could close it again when they wanted to. And, and the reality, as we all know, is that is that you can't and it doesn't work like that. And what may have started off as a trend gradually became much more deeply ingrained than that, because, you know, there, believe me, if you live through some of these bombings or lose your family, you you will you will fall to your knees and turn to God. You will, because that's all you have. Um, and it should come as no surprise to anybody that we have seen a real, uh, flourishing, uh, of more extremist or radical, uh, religious beliefs on the ground. Now, I think what happened is ISIS in all their kind of aberration, uh, became a center of gravity for the nastiest elements of that. And then, you know, they kind of split off and formed their own piece of the puzzle, so to speak. So the Islamist factions who remain in those rebel held areas are not like ISIS. They are, uh, they're, they're very different and strategically they're playing in a totally different game to ISIS. They're, they're trying to win hearts and minds to enmesh themselves in the local communities. Uh, they're not trying to implement Sharia law overnight or anything like that. Um, but they've definitely, they've definitely had an impact and the, and the vibe and the atmosphere has, has, has definitely changed in these parts of Syria for sure. Um, so I am speaking to you in, in London. We're just about out of time, but what, what are you working on next? What are I, can we expect you back in, in Syria anytime soon or what other stories, uh, do you think you might, you might move on to? So I am always looking for ways to keep telling the Syrian story, but to be smart about it and to not take unnecessary risks and to only do it when, when the story is really developing in a sense. Um, I am working on a documentary about extremism in Europe, looking at Belgium in particular. I am looking forward also to the possible march against Mosul, which I think, you know, mm. it looks like may finally be starting in the upcoming months. Um, yeah, I saw and, the UN Refugee yeah. Agency yesterday just put out a, a warning saying like something like 1.2 million people could be displaced in, in this fighting. Yes, there is a definitely a potential humanitarian catastrophe uh, in the pipeline here. But, but yeah, so those, those things are all keeping me busy. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was this was fantastic. This was interesting, and uh, I'm just glad to have been able to speak with you and and learn from you and encourage everyone to keep watching your dispatches on on CNN and elsewhere. Thank you so much. Really, it's a pleasure.